Hello, spy thriller fans, and welcome to episode two of Susan Willett's The Wayward Spy. I'm Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of The Wayward Spy for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter, and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! Previously on The Wayward Spy, intelligence analyst Maggie Jenkins finds herself grieving her fiancé's murder and questioning the CIA's account of what happened to him. Maggie must decide who to trust. Peter, her fiancé's CIA colleague, Warner Thompson, the CIA's spymaster, or her own gut instinct. Chapter 8 June 2000 Maggie offered a half-hearted laugh at her date's inane joke about the remote odds of Governor Bush winning the upcoming presidential election. Be right back, Peter. She slipped inside the third-floor apartment, leaving him on the balcony with two of his agency colleagues, who inexplicably found him funny. Dozens of CIA employees crowded into the two-bedroom apartment's small living room and kitchen. She maneuvered around an oversized faux suede sofa and several clusters of people whose voices rose over Eminem's most recent swaggy staccato beat hit song. She caught sight of a tall man with dark wavy hair watching her, a bemused smile revealing deep dimples. Flustered, she turned into the galley kitchen in search of a much-needed drink, red or white. She whirled around. Up close, he was even more attractive. Cobalt blue eyes and strong features completed the face she'd glimpsed across the room. What? She flushed. Do you prefer red or white wine? He reached behind her for an empty glass and placed it on the island separating the kitchen and the living room. White, I guess. When it's this warm outside, he smiled. Those dimples again. Perfect. I brought this bottle. You like Sauvignon Blanc? I don't really know much about wine. My favorite kind is whatever is in my glass. His laugh was robust and genuine. Are you one of them? She nodded toward the crowd in the living room. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. The way this party's going, you'd be doing me a favor. He laughed again and extended his right hand. Steve Ryder. The warmth from his touch spread up her arm and across her chest and face. In the presence of this real-life American James Bond, 
she suddenly forgot how to speak. Good Lord, he was gorgeous. This is the part where you tell me your name. She blushed furiously. Maggie Jenkins. He continued to hold her hand. You're not one of them, are you? He tilted his head towards the crowd. Me? Ha, no. I'm just a lowly intelligence analyst. Why have I never seen you at headquarters? She'd never seen him at Langley either. Of that, she was certain. Actually, I left the agency a year and a half ago to work for the House Intelligence Committee. Well then, I suppose I should behave myself so I don't get hauled up to the hill the next time an operation goes bad. Someone jacked up the volume for a Coldplay song. He pointed to his ears and motioned for her to follow. Maggie hesitated, looked around for Peter. She didn't want him to think she was abandoning him. Steve had his hand on the front door and gave a little nod. Their eyes locked. All the noise faded away. She smiled and joined him. Let's get some air, he suggested. Together, they stepped into the outdoors hallway that ran between apartments. I think you're the most unpretentious person I've met in DC. She shrugged. Sophistication is highly overrated. The conversation stalled. Every time he looked into her eyes, she lost her train of thought. A loud crash followed by raucous laughter emanated from inside the apartment. It's only going to get crazier in there. Trust me, I know these guys. Maggie glanced at her watch. It was only 9.15. I want to show you something. What? Don't worry, we'll be right back. Nobody will miss us. He took her hand and led her down the nearby stairway to the ground level. The June evening air was still, heavy with humidity. Maggie felt herself growing warmer. Steve led her to a sleek black and silver motorcycle that gleamed under the full moon's light. Ever ride one? She shook her head. Would you like to? Racing around on the back of a motorcycle with a man she didn't know? Um, I... I bet the monuments look spectacular tonight. This was crazy. Sure, why not? She could think of a thousand reasons why not. Here. He handed her a silver helmet with a black-tinted visor. I only have one helmet. Usually ride solo. Are you sure? Yep. She tugged it down over her head, flattening her curls. He leaned in close, fastened the strap for her, and mounted the bike. Hop on the back. Maggie swung her leg over the seat, her body resting against his. Hands around my waist, and hold on tight. She hesitated, then reached around him. When he twisted back, his abdomen muscles shifted under her fingertips. Ready? Nodding, breathless, Maggie held on tighter. The engine roared to life under them, then settled into a satisfying hum. He drove slowly out of the apartment complex, but sped up along Arlington Boulevard. As the motorcycle leaned into a curve, Maggie squeezed her legs against his. On the straightaway, he rested his left hand on her knee. Steve sped up to make it through a yellow light. She laughed, exhilarated. The moon hung low over the memorial bridge. Below, the Potomac River shimmered as if topped with a million diamonds. 
Ahead was the Lincoln Memorial, spotlights directed at its gleaming white marble edifice. They veered off to the left, where Steve slowed to find a parking spot along Constitution Avenue. He slipped the bike between a car and a shuttered food truck and killed the engine. Let's go see Mr. Lincoln. Maggie pulled off the helmet and fluffed her hair the best she could. Steve took her hand in his. Their fingers fit together perfectly, as if they'd been created precisely for this moment. The smooth skin and neatly trimmed nails on the top of his hand belied the calluses scattered across his palms. A rugged man who cleans up well, Maggie thought. He led her toward the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. To the left, an old man placed a folded up piece of paper at the base of the memorial, ran his fingertips across a name, and bowed his head. They paused for a moment and took in the expanse of the wall. All those names, young men gone far too soon. They set off for the Lincoln Memorial where more people congregated, some sitting by the reflecting pool, others snapping photos, and still others gazing off toward the Washington Monument and the Capitol building beyond. Maggie had taken many visiting friends and family into DC to see the National Mall, but being here tonight with Steve was another experience entirely. She felt buoyant, as if everything was new, and she was seeing the world through his eyes. Even as they strolled in silence, there was a connection. They smiled simultaneously as a small child, up past his bedtime, spun in circles and fell in a dizzy heap. Steve copied the little boy, spinning and falling, which sent the child into peals of laughter. Your turn, he called to Maggie. She offered up a pirouette, ta-da! The boy's parents, seated on a plaid blanket on the grass, applauded and smiled. Lovely, Steve added. He bid goodnight to the boy and bounded back to her side. So tell me, why did you join the agency, Maggie? She thought a moment. When I was a kid, I was fascinated with the Soviet Union. The whole evil empire thing, you know? He nodded. And as cliche as it sounds, I wanted to be on the side of freedom. Truth, justice, all that stuff. A girl after my own heart. Maggie thought her own heart might stop. She lowered her voice. Are you one of those idealistic patriots too? Steve nodded gravely. I am. But don't tell anyone. Or you'll have to kill me? They laughed a comfortable intimacy blossoming between them. Together, they climbed the 145 stairs from the reflecting pool to the base of Lincoln statue. Catching their breath at the top, they looked out across the mall, down to the Washington Monument, and over to the Capitol building in the distance. It's beautiful, Maggie breathed. Steve touched her face and turned her towards him, so beautiful. He leaned in closer, and they kissed, tenderly and slowly. Chapter Nine. Hello, anyone here? Warner called out to the empty office, just as he'd expected. Good. 
the 24-hour operations center down the hall would be buzzing, but few, if any, of his seventh-floor colleagues would be in this late on a Saturday. Barring a major catastrophe, he had the entire evening to himself to sort through the whole mess. There were days' worth of unread classified messages on his desktop computer, 362 in all, most from the field. What was really on Warner's mind was finding out if the NSA cable was authentic, because there was a chance it was as phony as that Russian phone call to Maggie. If that were the case, she was being played. And if Maggie was being played, whoever was doing it would feel the full weight of the CIA's power. He'd make sure of it. He searched through the stack of paper in his inbox. Not there. He checked his phone messages. Nothing again. Maybe the entire NSA matter had been dismissed at the deputies' meeting. He dialed the home number of Barbara Ferguson, the director of the counterintelligence center. The center was an amalgamation of personnel from the agency's directorates of operations and intelligence, the FBI, and assorted other acronym-heavy organizations. Barbara's answering machine picked up. Damn. He hung up and flipped through his Rolodex. Dernsa, the director of the NSA, wouldn't be happy to hear from him on the weekend, but this was important. His wife answered. He'd just left for a trip overseas. Next, the FBI counterintelligence chief, that SOB. Forget him, Warner muttered. He'd be about as helpful as an umbrella in a hurricane. He finally left a message on his secretary's answering machine. The rest of the world, it seemed, had a life outside of work. Warner began scrolling through his unopened email messages. Most were inconsequential administrative notices, he paused only to read operations reports from the field. A promising new asset in China, an urgent report from an asset in Indonesia, the murder of a Mexican drug cartel informant. His finger froze on message 361. It was a special channel, eyes only message from Peter Belikov. He hadn't expected to hear from him so soon after sending him back to Georgia just 48 hours ago. To DDO Thompson, from Peter Belikov, subject, Steve Ryder's notes. Per your instructions, I went through Steve's paper files. Below are notes he wrote a few days before his last meeting with his asset, GG Avenger. Last week, Avenger told me he believes that a US official has been providing intelligence to the Russian military or the Russian mafia. I've found there's little difference between the two organizations. Corrupt military officers make a good living working with the mafia. I tasked Avenger to find out more. Per your instructions, Tbilisi Chief of Station has not been advised of my research. Given what I've heard from my source about Steve being the one selling intelligence, could it be that he wrote these notes to deflect suspicion from himself? Peter. Warner drummed his fingers on the desk. I'll be damned, he muttered. Why hadn't Steve mentioned his suspicion about a US official? Failure to report this to him raised questions. Very uncomfortable questions about Steve's loyalty, to him and to the country. What did Steve know and whom did he tell?
but first things first. He needed to figure out who GG Avenger really was. GG was the agency's country code for Georgia, so clearly the guy was a local in Tbilisi. Maggie speculated that the Takayev mentioned in the NSA cable might be the name of Steve's asset. If so, then Avenger would be Takayev's code name. Warner rifled around in his file drawer. Where the hell was his password for the asset identity database? He tried every single one he could recall, but none worked. Priscilla knew them all, but she wasn't home. And just his luck, the stubborn woman refused to use a cell phone. At this hour, the chances of anyone being in the CIA station in Georgia were slim. Warner decided the matter couldn't wait. He'd have to breach security protocol. Peter's gruff voice answered the phone thousands of miles away. Yeah? Thompson here. You need to go in and call me back secure, now. Warner hung up. It would take Belikov five minutes to get his bearings, 10 to get to the station, and then another five to disarm the alarms and get himself situated. They'd have to figure out a cover story for Peter coming to the station in the middle of the night. Insomnia? Work overload? It wasn't that the Tbilisi chief of station couldn't be trusted necessarily. It was just that Warner wanted to keep things as quiet as possible until he figured out what the hell was going on. Now that the business of getting Steve's body home, consoling family and friends, and putting him to rest was over, Warner felt heavy with fatigue. How long ago had he been Steve's instructor down at the farm? Eight years already? It was hard to believe. He'd seen in Steve an instinctual talent, the same drive for adventure that had brought Warner from a life of privilege to the world of espionage. He'd encouraged the young case officer to pursue his passion despite his family's disappointment in his career choice. He knew what that was like firsthand. He'd nurtured Steve, helped him win plum assignments, and looked on with pride as he recruited top-notch assets and engineered several impressive intelligence coups. In many respects, he'd been the kid brother Warner never had. And now that Steve was gone, it hurt like hell. His secure line lit up, Peter? Yes, sir. His voice sounded less groggy, but more muffled from the scrambling technology that protected their conversation from prying foreign ears. Thanks for making it in so fast. And for the memo. The chief of station still doesn't know, right? That's right. Good. Let's keep it that way for now. Steve had an asset codenamed Avenger. Do you know if his real name was Takayev? I have no idea. I didn't have access to all of Steve's asset files and vice versa. I know, Warner interrupted, operational security. The rules, yep. But Steve's gone, and, he lied, the system's down for maintenance over here. Are you directing me to go into his computer files? Peter sounded reluctant. Yes, directing you, ordering you. You're covered. I'm the boss, remember? Right. Warner pictured sweat beating on the young case officer's forehead. I'll hang on the line. Great. It'll be just a minute. Booting up now. 
the sound of a clicking keyboard carried across the line. Here we go, I'm in. Warner's gut tightened. Okay, I found Avenger. Hang on. Takayev, yes, that's his real name, Joseph Takayev. Warner squeezed the phone. He'd hoped that the Takayev Maggie had read about in the NSA cable would turn out to be someone Steve didn't know. But now it was clear that not only did Steve know Takayev, he'd recruited him to spy for the United States. And now they were both dead. He cleared his throat. Nice work, Peter. We still have to keep this quiet. I have a small team working on the investigation here. He lied again. It's standard operating procedure to bring in an outside team to look into such matters. Can't have people with personal stakes leading the investigation. In truth, outside of whatever the FBI planned to do, the investigation team consisted of one person, himself. Oh, and Peter? One more question. Did any of the articles in the local papers mention Takayev? Not that I've seen, sir. I mean, I never heard of the guy until now. I'll double check, but as far as I recall, all the reporting has focused on Steve. The killing of an American official is a big deal over here. Has the media identified Steve as CIA? Not yet. It was only a matter of time until that information leaked. The situation was getting more complicated by the moment. If it was true that Steve, a CIA operative, was selling intelligence and the media found out, the agency would take yet another public relations hit. He'd be dragged before Congress to explain how he didn't know that one of his own employees was a traitor. Warner groaned. What he wouldn't give for the good, bad old days, when the enemy was known and the mission was clear. Back then, the enemy was the Soviet Union, and the mission was to stop the spread of communism. There were rules, rules that both sides obeyed, more or less. Each side spied on the other's government and tried to recruit spies from within the enemy camp. Those rules no longer applied. These days, the espionage business was a free-for-all. Multiple actors with multiple interests, willing to do whatever it took to advance their agendas, switching sides on a dime, and perfecting the strategy of asymmetric warfare. Peter, about that cable you sent me last night, the one about Avenger telling Steve he believed that a US official has been providing intelligence to the Russians, do you think this might tie in with your source, the one claiming that Steve was dirty? Not sure. I'll contact him tomorrow. He seemed credible, but he was a walk-in, so I'm not sure what to make of him yet. A walk-in? In the Cold War days, informants offering to tell the CIA everything they knew about their country's secrets set off immediate alarms. Sometimes walk-ins were sent for disinformation purposes or to distract the CIA from something else. But then again, as much as the agency was loath to admit it, some of the best spies they ever had were walk-ins. Regardless, until they could verify who this person really was, Peter was right to be suspicious. Thanks, Peter. Don't hesitate to go special channel again if you come across any new information. This is important. Dread thrummed through Warner's body. 
What if it turned out that Steve was the US official Takayev claimed was selling intel to the Russians? Had Steve's own asset unwittingly revealed his handler's treason? If any of this were true, the personal betrayal would be agonizing. Professionally, it would be a disaster. Steve, his golden boy, the one he'd mentored since day one, a traitor? Warner's career would be as good as over. Chapter 10 On Sunday morning, Maggie grabbed a Phillips head screwdriver from the junk drawer. She thumped the orange handle against her palm as she compiled a daunting mental to-do list. Commit the cable to memory because carrying it is too risky. Go into work and snoop for whatever could be found and figure out what really happened to Steve. Warner had asked her not to accept any more classified documents. He never said not to look at the ones she already had. Upstairs in the guest bathroom, she unscrewed the shower nozzle's plastic cover. You're a clever one, she murmured. Gently, she grasped a corner of the tightly folded plastic bag and tugged it out. Not even the FBI would think to look there for classified documents. Credit for her tradecraft went not to CIA training, but to her childhood propensity for hiding diaries and notes, trying to keep her personal life from prying eyes. When she was nine, she'd caught her mother leafing through her diary. And even though she had few secrets at that age, it was a betrayal she'd never forgotten. Earlier this year, when Steve was fixing the shower, it struck her that she could hide something small inside the nozzle. At the time, she had no particular object in mind. But everything changed yesterday when Kate slipped her the envelope. Maggie unzipped the bag and pulled out the paper, smoothing open the accordion folds. She read the cable several times, closed her eyes, and whispered it aloud. No way she could carry it around. With her luck, it would fall out of her purse at work. She refolded the paper, tucked it in the bag, and curled it into the nozzle housing. She fastened the cover in place and took a final glance to be sure everything looked normal. She turned to the sink, splashed cold water on her face, and stared into the mirror. A disheveled mess stared back. A tangle of red curls, day-old makeup, and a baby blue velour tracksuit that had seen better days. Way too much wine last night. It had helped her sleep, but a shower would help, but there was no time to waste. Steve's aviator sunglasses were the last best option to camouflage her overall state of distress. 30 minutes later, she flashed her staff badge at the police officer guarding the document door on the Capitol building's east side. He searched her purse thoroughly, standard operating procedure for the past couple of years. Apparently satisfied that her lipstick case did not contain a weapon of mass destruction, he let her through with a, have a nice day, ma'am. Maggie entered the crypt, her tennis shoes padding faintly on the stone floor, smoothed by centuries of wear. The weight of the building's elegant rotunda and massive dome bore down on Doric columns and sandstone arches positioned strategically throughout the room. Chandeliers around the crypt's perimeter failed to brighten it, 
instead casting hushed shadows on people and objects below. But the lighting was appropriate, she thought, for a room originally intended as a memorial sanctuary over George Washington's tomb, which stood empty one floor below. Maggie treasured this building for all its architectural and historical magnificence, even more so since its brush with destruction at the hands of malevolent fanatics who never fathomed the fundamental courage of ordinary citizens. She paused, thanking God for the passengers on Flight 93, whose sacrifice ensured that the Capitol building wouldn't be destroyed on that fateful September 11th. She swallowed the lump in her throat as the elevator door rattled open. Crying was not on her to-do list. Officer Jim, as everyone called him, was guarding the entrance to the intelligence committee. She'd hoped there'd be some random weekend guard who didn't know her or anything about Steve. No such luck. Hey there, officer. What are you doing here? Jim glanced up from a newspaper. I should ask the same of you. His eyebrows drew together. How are you, Maggie? I'm doing all right, Jim, I guess. Thought I'd come in and catch up on emails and stuff, she rambled. I have another week off, but I was driving myself nuts at home. You shouldn't rush back to work. You'll need time, you know. Oh, I know, but she ran out of words. You going to be here long? Maggie shrugged, afraid her voice would betray the emotion below. Just wondering. One of the members called a while ago to see if anyone would be here today. Guess he's coming in to do some work. Said he doesn't have the combination. She didn't hear the rest of his sentence. She didn't want to see anyone, especially a congressman. But if she hurried, she could get her work done before he showed up. I'll be here for a while, Jim. Great. I'll call and let him know the office is open. He nodded to the solid oak door to his left. I'll buzz you in. Maggie dialed the combination lock. 36 right, 14 left, 27 right, click. Then keyed in her pin on the number pad on the wall. The alarm light flashed from red to green. With the lock and alarm disabled, anyone could enter the committee space once the guard pressed a concealed button that released the final locking mechanism. Jim reached under the desk and hit the button. A loud buzz melded with a click of metal. Maggie pushed the heavy door open just wide enough to slip inside. It slammed shut behind her. The dull emergency light further up the corridor cast pulsating shadows ahead. No outside light ever penetrated the Capitol's attic, at least not here at the base of the building's iconic dome. The absence of windows throughout the committee's space made it impossible for her to orient herself to the outside world. Did her office face the National Mall to the west or the Supreme Court to the east? Maggie's hand swept across the wall until her fingers found the switch. She resisted the urge to call out, Anyone there? There was a shortcut through the hearing room ahead. By congressional standards, it was a small, plain space. No marble, lush carpet, or oversized portraits of congressional giants. But the room had what it needed. Soundproof walls, secure phone lines, and no listening devices. 
Regular security sweeps ensured that the information discussed behind these doors would not be overheard by prying ears. Of course, there was little the security staff could do to prevent a committee member from blabbing national security secrets to the nearest reporter. Some congressmen leaked out of ignorance, not fully comprehending the importance of the information in their possession. Those members could be rehabilitated, indoctrinated into the rules of secrecy. Rarer, but far more dangerous, were members who saw every microphone as a tool to enhance their public exposure and demonstrate their importance to anyone who gave a damn. Maggie continued through the committee's excuse for a kitchen, a coffee machine, refrigerator, and microwave, past a conference room, and into the hall leading to the main office suite. The place was empty, all right. Every light was out. She turned into her office and stopped short. The candid photo on her desk gleamed with sunny color. She and Steve sat together on a Cape Cod jetty, his arm draped casually across her shoulder. He was tan and strong. She was freckled and serene. Everything good in her life was captured in that one moment. Maggie bit down on her lip and fled further up the hall. Not now. Ahead was an open space housing several desks for the committee's administrative staff. Normally, she'd stop to chat with at least one of the women, but their desks sat empty on the weekend. Besides, her destination was the vault, where the committee stored its most sensitive intelligence. Just past the administrative area sat the copy machine, the committee security officer's desk, and the entrance to the vault. Another combination lock secured a massive fire and blast-proof door. She signed her initials to the log sheet and spun the dial. The door groaned open under the force of her full body weight. She punched in her pin again. Failure to do so promptly would send an alert to some poor soul charged with monitoring secret alarms all over Washington, D.C. Maggie felt vaguely guilty. Using government documents for personal purposes was not exactly allowed. She paused for a moment, thinking of Steve, of shrapnel tearing through his body, shattering muscle and bone like a hammer to glass. Not only did she have a right to be here, she had an obligation, to Steve, to the truth. With a deep breath, she stepped into the vault, not sure exactly what she hoped to find. The real treasure trove of American intelligence, outside of the CIA, of course, was found in this obscure room tucked in a remote corner of the U.S. Capitol building. Before her stood rows of floor-to-ceiling sliding steel shelves, boxes spilling over with unfiled documents, and obsolete files stacked in line, waiting patiently to be shredded and burned. She exhaled noisily and pushed hair away from her face, unleashing the stale scent of last night's wine. Wine in my hair? A headache nagged. She never should have opened that second bottle of red. The thought of curling up for a nap in her office was eminently appealing, but this could be her only opportunity to find what she needed. Maggie scanned the stickers on the shelves. She reached for the first folder dated 2003 and flipped through the documents inside. 
There was nothing on Russia or Chechnya. Why isn't this stuff better labeled? She shoved the folder back in its slot, tearing a nail in the process. Her fingertip turned red. Damn it, she muttered, wiping the blood on her well-worn hooded sweatshirt. The next folder was more promising. There had been three committee hearings relating to Russia in the past year. It would take hours to go through all the documents, but with any luck, they might offer up a clue. She flipped to the bottom of the stack, pulling out a thin folder. It contained an intelligence report alleging that Chechen rebels were training in Al-Qaeda camps in Pakistan and eastern Afghanistan. Underneath the report was a staff memo to the CIA requesting a briefing for Richard Carvelli. Her breath quickened. The topic was Chechen involvement in Russian arms smuggling. Interesting. A few months before Steve deployed to Tbilisi, Carvelli had been part of a congressional delegation to Georgia and several other former Soviet republics. If memory served, that Codel had been focused on economic development in the small countries bordering Russia, not on national security issues. Maybe, she mused, his visit had sparked an interest in Russian arms trafficking. Carvelli certainly liked to portray himself as a national security expert. In fact, he'd made several recent speeches on the House floor about the threat from weapons of mass destruction, vowing to insomniac C-SPAN watchers that he'd stop at nothing to prevent terrorists from acquiring these doomsday weapons. Perhaps the CIA briefing he'd requested was part of his self-serving crusade to save the American people. Or maybe. Something clicked in her memory. She turned and gripped the cool steel handle on the gunmetal gray file cabinet in the corner. Inside lay the most sensitive intelligence documents in the committee's possession. If anyone walked in on her rifling through them, there could be serious trouble. Even as a trusted, highly cleared government official, Maggie was expected to uphold the need-to-know principle. Unless she had a verifiable need to know and the specific clearances for certain information, she had no right, professional, legal, or otherwise, to access it. But she'd started down this path when she'd accepted the NSA cable from Kate. There was no turning back. The combination came to her immediately. She pulled the drawer open, her ears primed for the slightest hint of any movement in the office, Licking her dry lips, she ran her index finger across the files. There were covert action notifications for programs in South America, the Middle East, the Far East. She flipped through them quickly. Where was it? There. The presidential finding ordered the CIA to intercept illicit arms shipments going from Russia to terrorist groups and rogue countries without linking the activity to the U.S., Steve, she whispered, had this been his job? Maybe he'd been running this operation. And Takayev was the agent doing the dirty work, intercepting weapons shipments. The NSA wouldn't have known about such a sensitive operation, which would explain why the cable linked Takayev with Chechen terrorists instead of identifying him as a CIA asset. And maybe- Hello, anyone here? A voice called from somewhere out in the main office. 
she slid the document under her sweatshirt, closed the drawer, spun the combination lock, and ducked behind the vault door. Without thinking, she swatted off the light. Officer said someone opened the office for me. Hello? The male voice was familiar. Maggie berated herself for turning out the light. She couldn't look more suspicious if she tried. Well, this works out fine, the voice said just outside the vault. She flattened herself tighter against the wall. Her heart thumped. When the light came on, she pressed her lips together to suppress any sound that might expose her. Through the crack between the door and the jam, Maggie could see part of a man's back. She heard the shuffle of paper and then the rattle of a metal drawer. Really? He muttered under his breath. When did they start locking this damn thing? He banged a fist on the cabinet. Maggie shrank away from the crack as he stomped out the door. Her chest was about to explode. She gulped in air as his footsteps faded, then stole out of the vault, peering slowly around the corner. There was light coming from the chairman's office. But it couldn't be him. He was back in his congressional district this weekend. She inched down the hall. The man was on the phone, leaving a message for someone. I need your help. Call me as soon as you get this message. The cell's on. His cell phone? No one, not even the highest and mightiest member of Congress, could bring a cell phone or any potential transmitting device into committee spaces. After a minute, he spoke again. Hey, it's me. Listen, I'm having a little trouble getting everything together on such short notice, but I'm launching the next offensive today. I think you'll like the results. He paused to listen. Have I ever let you down? Another pause. All right then, relax. The documents are at my house. Give me an hour. Yep, I'm leaving now. The desk chair protested under the man's shifting weight. He mumbled something unintelligible, giving Maggie just enough warning to slip under the secretary's desk that stood outside the committee chairman's office. The next offensive? Her heart pounded. Documents at his house? It sounded like he had walked past, but she remained hidden under the desk until the distant thud of the front door jolted her. What the hell was going on? She wound her way back down the hall to the entrance and popped her head out the door. Hey, Jim, did your visitor leave? He nodded, looking up from a crossword puzzle. Mr. Carvelli? Yep. Didn't say a word to me, though. The name hit her with a wallop. Carvelli? What was he doing here? I didn't speak to him either. By the time I realized he was in the office, he was on the telephone and I didn't want to disturb him. Maggie tilted her head. Did he know I was here? Not if he didn't see you. He didn't ask who opened the office. Why do you ask? Oh, it's not a big deal. It's just that he would be concerned if he knew I came into work so soon after. Steve, her mind scrambled to weave a story. Mr. Carvelli lectured me at the funeral to take some time off before returning to work, and I'd hate for him to find out I was here. Ack. She threw her hands up in feigned exasperation. I know everyone means well, but 
I'm not a child. Jim chuckled. Your secret is safe with me, unless, of course, he asks me point blank. Of course, Jim, I'm not asking you to lie for me. I just don't want to cause any unnecessary trouble for myself. She sighed. Everyone seems to think I won't be able to handle life. You seem to be handling things fine. But I have to say, I agree with the congressman. You should take some time off. We'll see. She forced a smile. I better go finish my work. Inside, she berated herself for rambling on. She'd have to get better at lying. As she stepped back into the office, she heard Jim mumble. You'd think he'd learn how to do this himself. She pushed the door back open. You say something? Just talking to myself, Jim said. It's ridiculous. You know, considering how many weekends he's here, you'd think he'd learn the combination. Carvelli? Yeah. He comes in here a lot on weekends? That's what I heard from the weekend duty officer. He warned me that I'd probably see Mr. Carvelli. Sure enough, he called to see if the office was open. Who usually opens up for him? Don't know, some other staffer, I assume. Let's see here. Jim began flipping through the sign-in log. Huh, that's funny. What? She stepped fully into the hall. The door crashed shut behind her. The sign-in logs from the last two months are here, but check it out. No one signed in for the past couple of weekends. Jim handed her the paper. Maybe he hasn't been in recently, she offered. He frowned. That's not the impression I had, but you're probably right. I'll ask my colleagues next week, just to make sure people aren't forgetting to sign in. Sounds good. Jim put the log back in place. Well, enough of this chit-chat, officer. I have work to do. Maggie smiled in defiance of the tension coursing through her limbs and stepped back into the office. Someone was letting Carvelli into the office every weekend but not making a record of it. If Carvelli was coming in here at all hours for unexplained reasons, and he had an interest in the covert action files, was it possible he was looking at Steve's mission in Georgia? But why? She tried to connect the dots in her head. There were way too many ifs and not enough facts. Maggie ran back to the vault and pulled the presidential finding out from under her sweatshirt, comparing the date on it to the dates Carvelli had requested briefings. Snatching a piece of paper from a nearby trash bin, she wrote down a flurry of information, folded the note, and shoved it in her sweatpants pocket. Hesitating a few seconds, she rolled up the finding and slipped it into the pouch of her hoodie. Hands trembling, she locked the vault and ran down the hall, hitting light switches on the fly. She burst through the front door, quickly punching in her pin and spinning the dial on the lock. Bye, Jim, she said, avoiding direct eye contact. I thought you had work to do. Done, she called. Take care of yourself, Maggie. I will. Downstairs, she hurried past the guard, breaking into a full run outside on the plaza. Clutching her purse, she ran hard, challenging her lungs to keep up with her legs. Across the faded lawn, weaving around monstrous old trees, she ran up to First Street, stopping only to avoid being hit by a taxi. 
the presidential finding was burning a hole through her pocket. What have I done? Chapter 11, October 2001. They lay together in a tangle of sheets. Maggie ran her fingers through the dark waves of Steve's hair, knowing that what she said next would ruin the moment. But it couldn't wait. So, about Uzbekistan. Don't remind me. Steve groaned as he nuzzled her neck. Her hands floated down his biceps and across his muscular chest. Never had she felt as safe as she did when he held her. She inhaled his crisp, fresh scent. Everything she'd ever wanted was captured in this man. And now he was about to leave her for the first time, for six long months. I know you don't want to talk about it. She kissed him softly on the lips, but you leave in five days. And I'm terrified, she wanted to add. Uzbekistan a former Soviet Republic, was struggling with the rise of radical Islam, and Steve was going to be in the middle of it. He tucked a curl behind her ear. I'm going to be okay. I know, it's just that, what are you going to be doing over there? Maggie, will you be in the embassy? Sometimes. And the rest of the time? She shuddered at the thought of him being in danger. He lowered his voice. There's a target, a woman. A woman? She pulled the sheet up over her chest. He laughed. Yeah, she's like 60 years old, married to a corrupt government official we're tracking. A wave of relief rushed over her. Oh, good, I think. He traced a finger along her clavicle. I'll be counting the days until I get back. Her eyes grew moist. How will I know you're okay? Can you call me at a certain time every day? He propped himself up on an elbow. Yeah, I can do that. How about first thing in the morning, my time? It'll be the middle of the night here. If you don't pick up, I'll leave you a message. She'd sleep with a portable phone next to her bed. I'll pick up. This was all starting to sound okay. Having a plan in place would make his absence more structured, eliminate some of the worry. Steve nodded. I may not be able to call every day. I know. If you don't hear from me for two straight days, call Warner. I'll give you his home and office numbers. Warner Thompson? The deputy director of operations? He leaned in and kissed her softly on the lips. He's my mentor. We're close. And he already knows all about you, Maggie. He does? I had to tell someone. Her heart hammered in her chest. What if you get kidnapped or something? He took her face in his hands and stared deep into her eyes. If something happens to me, Warner will be the one to tell you. He will take care of you. Steve, please, nothing will happen. Promise? He kissed her tenderly. Promise. Chapter 12. The next morning, Maggie trudged across the Capitol Plaza through the brisk wind. 
back too soon. She glanced across the street, unable to see the Supreme Court building through the darkness. Pulling her coat tighter, she forged ahead, shoulders against the gusts. The miserable weather served as a perfect reflection of her mood. Maggie climbed the Capitol steps and presented her badge to the officer, avoiding direct eye contact. The crypt was still, its silence reverberating from every gracious curve. There'd be few congressmen around this Monday. Most were still in their districts, except for Carvelli, of course. That meant there'd be even fewer lobbyists around, what with their quarry away. And the tourists? They'd be along after the sun rose. As she stepped off the elevator, Maggie cleared her throat, alerting the guard to her arrival. Morning, she croaked as she turned the corner. Good morning, he answered, his face sagging from bored exhaustion. Open? The guard nodded. A quick glance at the sign-in sheet showed that Wendy Carlson, one of the committee's secretaries and a friend, had signed in minutes before. Damn. She had hoped to get in and out before anyone else arrived for the workday. Maggie proceeded to her office. It was the last place she wanted to be, but she had to return the presidential finding before anyone noticed it was gone. She ducked into her office, flung her purse onto the desk, and stepped back into the hall. Ahead, Wendy was at her desk next to the chairman's office, frowning at the computer through steel-rimmed glasses. Maggie, what are you doing here? I thought you'd be out at least another week. She jumped up to hug her friend. Maggie could barely lift her arms. Weariness permeated every bone. I needed to get out of the house for a while. I bet, she said, nodding in sympathy. So all the relatives leave, or are they still around? Mom's gone. My father didn't make it. She'd never talked about her deadbeat father with anyone except Steve. Wendy's eyebrows shot up. Still a daddy's little girl at 26, she couldn't fathom such a no-show. He had the flu, so much as he wanted to be here. Maggie shifted on her feet. Did I miss anything big? Work-related, not really. Wendy let the sentence hang. But... Things have been interesting for me. A conversation about Wendy's love life? Under any other circumstances, she'd welcome another of her friend's salacious tales about life as a single woman in Washington, D.C. They were always good for a laugh, but not today. Still, she couldn't risk raising Wendy's suspicions, so she bit. Is this the mysterious older man? <laughs> yes. Wendy gushed like a teenager reveling in a new crush. He is so amazing, and I'm not just talking about the sex. Wendy, Maggie protested, playing along. I'm not sure I can handle this so early in the morning. I can, whenever he can, she burst out laughing. Sorry. Maggie smiled, pretending to be amused. That why you're here so early today? Up all night with a new man? I wish. Wendy sighed, no date yesterday. I went to a family party and had to come in early today to finish putting together the members' briefing books. Well, I won't keep you then. Hey, I'm starving. This can wait a few minutes. 
Wendy dismissed her computer with a wave. The cafeteria will be open at 6.30. Wanna walk down? Not really. Sure, just let me hang up my coat. A minute later, Wendy appeared outside the door to Maggie's office. Come on, my treat. They walked down a back stairway leading to the basement. Rarely was anyone seen on these stairs other than committee staff and VIPs trying to avoid the public. The only tourists encountered were lost ones. So when do I find out more about the boyfriend? Like a name? Maggie asked, her voice echoing off the metal staircase. Or are you going to leave me guessing? You know I'd tell you everything if I could, but he's a very public person who values his privacy. With a hint of desperation, Wendy added, and if he found out I told anyone, he'd probably dump me. Is he married? Maggie had to ask. No, I swear, he's a very eligible bachelor, believe me. Then why the secrecy? Wendy's lips tightened. She pulled open the stairwell door and marched down the hall, leaving Maggie trailing behind. Hey, I just don't want to see you get hurt, Maggie called ahead. Wendy stopped at the cafeteria entrance. I know, but I don't want to mess this up. My gut is telling me this could be it. It? You mean like it, it? Maggie suppressed a groan. She'd heard this before. Wendy beamed. She clutched Maggie's arm, leading her to the counter. What'll it be? Just an English muffin, butter on the side, and a large coffee. Wendy chatted aimlessly while they waited at the counter, dropping anecdotes about her new love, what a powerful man he was, and how he'd promised to keep her by his side as he ascended the ladder of influence in the nation's capital. And not only that, he plans to sponsor legislation to help disadvantaged children attend college for free. Isn't that amazing? Maggie nodded and smiled through gritted teeth. She was losing precious time, but she didn't want to give her friend a reason to be suspicious, so she nodded in all the right places. They opted for the stairwell on the way up. Need to burn off this cream cheese, Wendy joked. Maggie ducked into her office, promising to check back later. There were no voicemail messages. Wendy must have run interference for her all last week. There was also nothing of note in her email. After 20 minutes of shuffling paper, she headed for the vault. Wendy was immersed in her work, and no other coworkers had arrived yet. This was the perfect opportunity. Inside, the file cabinet was unlocked. Maggie pulled the presidential finding from where it was concealed in the waistband of her pants. Hey, Maggie. Bill, the committee's security officer, appeared at the vault door. She froze. Hi. What are you doing here? I, I thought work would be a good distraction, she stammered, clutching the document to her chest, just tying up loose ends before I take a few more days off. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Sure. Maggie feigned a smile. She exhaled as his footsteps faded, only to be startled by the sudden appearance of Wendy. Ah, Maggie gasped, dropping the paper. Don't sneak up on me like that. Her eyes snapped to the floor where the presidential finding lay exposed. 
she snatched it and stuffed it into the shredder next to the cabinet. The machine devoured the paper, reducing it to minute slivers in just seconds. Maggie's face was hot. Thought I'd clean out my safe a little bit before I left. I'm such a pack rat. Wendy looked at the shredder, then back at Maggie. Would you just get out of here, go home, watch Oprah, drink tea, go. I'm going. Maggie turned and scurried back to her office. Calm down. Taking that document home was a stupid move. Shredding it was even worse. Better to leave now than risk making an even bigger mistake. She logged off the computer, grabbed her coat, and hurried down the hall. Her gut churned. What had she done? What if Carvelli asked to see the covert action files today? Would anyone suspect her? Maggie flew past Officer Jim, who'd just arrived for his shift. Hi, Maggie, he called out, but she was already at the elevator door before he could utter another word. She pushed the down button three times. Come on. She rushed in when the door opened and found herself entangled with Richard Carvelli. Well, isn't this a pleasant way to start the day, the congressman said, holding his ground. Welcome back, Maggie. She stepped back. Thanks. She tried to slide by him on the right. Carvelli shuffled, blocking her. I expected you to take a longer break after your loss. His breath was warm on her face. But since you're here, I could use your help on a little project. There's plenty of other staff to help you. She turned her shoulder and squeezed by him. In the past year, he'd hit on her several times, like he did with pretty much every female who crossed his path. Today, she was tempted to swing her purse at his head. He looked over his shoulder at her. Give it time, Maggie. Things will get better. He sounded almost genuine, but then he added, take it from me. The single life ain't so bad. Maggie felt like retching. Down on the ground floor, she hurried for the exit. Outside, she stood for a moment in the crisp morning air, gasping for breath. Chapter 13 Warner poured his fourth cup of coffee. The pot slipped out of his shaking hand, shattering on the countertop. His secretary appeared at once. Are you okay? Priscilla asked as she grabbed a roll of paper towels from the cabinet. Here, let me take care of that. Thanks, Warner grunted, wiping coffee splatter off his pants. A piece of glass crunched underfoot while the burner hissed with the smell of burnt caffeine. I need the deputy's meeting memo as soon as you can get it. Dazed by a lack of sleep, he headed to his office, collapsed into the chair, and closed his eyes. It was early afternoon, but he'd been up for 12 hours already. Finally, he snapped as Priscilla dropped a file on his desk. Someone needs a vacation, she retorted on her way out the door. You have no idea. He flipped through the file. The NSA cable Maggie had described was not attached. Damn it. He popped a few more antacid tablets into his mouth. Hey, Warner, what's up? Barbara Ferguson appeared outside his office. 
three voicemail messages before seven o'clock in the morning on a Monday? The counterintelligence center chief had two children she saw off to school every day before work. Sorry it took me so long to come see you. Wall-to-wall meetings this morning. He waved her into his office. Barbara, what I'm about to tell you cannot leave this room. Her lips narrowed into a thin line. What is it? I heard about the deputies' meeting last week, the NSA cable. Barbara appeared relieved. Oh, that. Sure, we discussed it, among other things. Fill me in. Warner tapped a pencil on his thigh. NSA said that the cable got out to a few of its employees, but that it was pulled the next day. Why? They said there was a potential counterintelligence issue, but they couldn't provide me with details yet. But you're the CIA's counterintelligence lead, she rolled her eyes. Bastards at the fort are always trying to pull rank, as usual. Other intelligence agencies fought against ceding too much of their information to the CIA. The bureaucratic turf wars were legendary and never-ending. What about the FBI? The FBI is taking the lead in the investigation, she smirked. You know what that means. He knew exactly what that meant. They're going to lock the agency out, aren't they? She nodded. Sounds like it. A trickle of sweat ran down his back. Steve was a CIA case officer. They can't shut us out. Technically, they can. The bombing is considered a crime. That's the FBI's turf, as is investigating whether a US official was selling intelligence. She leaned forward and whispered, but I couldn't agree with you more. The agency should be in the loop. She shut the door behind her, which is why I snatched a copy of the cable. Warner flexed his calves, ready to leap from the chair. Well played, Miss Ferguson. I know, she laughed, and easy enough. I'm like the invisible woman during these meetings, while they were trading golf stories. I slipped a copy of the cable out of the FBI director's folder. Just like that, just like that. She lowered her voice. Obviously, it goes without saying, no one else can know. Obviously, Warner agreed. In fact, I'd feel better if I gave you the cable for safekeeping. Not that I really expect them to notice it missing. I'll lock it in my personal safe. He nodded to the gray Hamilton safe in the corner. She was back in a flash, handing over a file folder with a red border and top secret stamped in large black letters. I have to run to a meeting down on six. If you need anything else, please call. She left and closed the door. Warner lifted the cover of the file and studied the official cable. It was real. And it included everything Maggie had mentioned. Chapter 14 Ice tumbled out of the dispenser with an abrasive rasp. Maggie was out of wine, but hadn't she sworn it off anyway? Tepid vodka flowed over the ice, splitting it with a crisp crackle. She twirled the ice around with her finger before taking a sip. She was at a loss. No evidence, no plan, and no answers. 
It wasn't much past noon, but this called for a stiff drink. A loud thump came from the door knocker. No way, she groaned. Could it be Warner? She snatched the refrigerator handle and hid her glass inside behind a jar of jelly. Thud, thud. She hurried silently on tiptoe toward the front, slid behind an end table in the living room and pulled back the curtain. That wasn't Warner's car in the driveway. On the landing outside stood a middle-aged man with a generous paunch and an unruly mop of jet black hair. Who the hell? Maggie turned the deadbolt and pulled open the door. Yes? Maggie Jenkins, the man stated in a guttural accent she couldn't place. Yes? She squeezed the doorknob with her right hand. I have some information for you. May I come in? He glanced furtively over his shoulder. Information? On what? Please, Miss Jenkins, not here. Maggie shook her head. Look, I don't know who you are or what you want, and I'm not in the mood for any kind of- About your fiance. His black eyes bore into her. The bombing. Who are you? Tamaz Ashkenazi. I am a political officer at the Georgian Embassy in Washington. His olive-skinned face betrayed no emotion. He held out an embossed, official-looking card. The embassy, as in the Republic of Georgia? She took the card and stared at it, trying to understand. Yes, I will explain everything. He stepped forward without invitation and stood in the threshold now, less than a foot from her. She was a good three inches taller, but the dark circles imprinted under his eyes spoke of at least a decade on her. The Georgian glanced over at the couch and removed his overcoat. Oh, please have a seat, Maggie offered. What am I doing? He settled on the wing chair facing the front door. Though still wary, Maggie shut the door and sat on the couch. Well, Maggie splayed her fingers on her lap. She tried to calculate whether it would be easier to bolt outside or run for the telephone if the man attacked. Ashkenazi continued to stare from under thick, unruly brows. She shifted. You say you're from the embassy. He raised an eyebrow in response, then leaned forward, his jowls leading the way. I am not here on official business. It was her turn for silence. She was too confused for anything else. He cleared his throat, but what sounded like decades of smoking still scratched at his voice. What I have to say, you never heard from me. I didn't? Maggie was growing less frightened and more annoyed. A scowl crossed his face. You don't seem to understand, Miss Jenkins. I am putting my life in jeopardy just by being here. Perhaps yours, too. Then why are you here? Just spill it. Revenge. Maggie's muscles tensed. Against me, Steve? She pushed herself up off the couch. You need to leave. He stood. Miss Jenkins, please sit. I didn't mean to alarm you. 
A grimace revealed dingy, uneven teeth. His voice dropped. My brother also was murdered last week. I don't understand. Who's your brother? Ashkenazi's jaw tightened. My brother worked for Georgia's Ministry of State Security. He emitted a noise somewhere between a grunt and a snort. Our KGB, you might say. I'm very sorry. Why was he telling her this? What was your brother's name? He closed his eyes. Joseph. Silence hung between them. Maggie was at a loss for words, just like the people who came to pay respects at Steve's funeral. I'll make us some tea. She escaped to the kitchen to consider her options. Asking him to leave was the most logical move, but he might be telling the truth. As a Georgian official, he really might know something about the bombing. After filling the kettle, she checked the drawer to the left of the stove. Wrapped in a towel and tucked behind the utensil organizer was Steve's loaded 38 revolver. The Georgian seemed harmless enough, but just in case the situation went sideways. Miss Jenkins, he appeared suddenly in the kitchen. Her left hand jumped to the back of the drawer. Please forgive me for this intrusion. I should go, I just, it is very difficult. Maggie couldn't have said it better herself. Everything was difficult now, nothing more so than the act of living. Her grip tightened around the towel. It's always difficult to lose a loved one. I believe my brother knew your fiance. Maggie's fingers slid under the towel and brushed against the 38's cool satin steel barrel. He knew Steve? She leaned against the countertop next to the stove, still not used to hearing Steve referred to in the past tense. In what way? They had a meeting last Monday at the cafe in Tbilisi. Her knees weakened. At a cafe? The Georgian nodded. The screech of the kettle gave her a moment to breathe. My brother was helping to track weapons going from Russia to terrorist groups. In fact, Joseph was a CIA asset. Joseph Ash. She glanced at the business card she dropped on the counter. Ashkenazi? Her mind swirled with contradictory thoughts. This didn't make sense. Steve's asset was named Takayev. She left the utensil drawer open walked to the table and poured the steaming water into the mugs. Tell me about Joseph. She was desperate to know more. He is, was my younger brother. Our father died when we were children. Our mother raised us alone. It wasn't easy raising two energetic boys in a foreign land. Foreign land? Our father was Georgian. My mother is Chechen. Maggie's hand trembled as she lowered the kettle to the burner. So you consider yourself Chechen? No, no. I'm my father's son, Georgian to my soul. Maggie nodded, not sure what that meant. Joseph was different. He took more interest in the Chechen side of the family than I ever did. 
She inched her way back towards the stove. Why? He stirred his tea and frowned. Georgians are not big fans of Russia. Joseph very much supported Chechnya's fight for independence. Until the Islamists took over and tried to impose their ways on the Chechen people. He slurped from the mug. Once the radicals started operating in Georgia, he felt like he had to do something about it. What did he do? He tried to get Georgian intelligence to focus on the radical threat. But he quickly realized that as long as the Chechen rebels were targeting Russia, our government would do nothing to stop them. Maggie raised her eyebrows. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, precisely, Tamas offered. In addition, Joseph suspected that several of his intelligence colleagues were accepting money from Russian gangsters. The mafia is everywhere. The very men who are supposed to protect our country take bribes to ignore the Chechen radicals in Georgia, who work with Al-Qaeda and help ship weapons. Weapons that could be used against us. He tapped the table and glared at her with narrowed eyes. We were a captive nation for far too long. Now we are free, but in name only. The criminals, the Russians, terrorists, they tear us apart. Maggie slipped onto the chair across the table from him, stilled by his bitterness. So he confided in you, she prompted. Yes. Last week he told me he had infiltrated a Chechen cell and was feeding information to an American. Ashkenazi's skin seemed to sag more under the weight of his sorrow. Your fiance was at the cafe when the bomb went off. He paused, as if waiting for confirmation. Maggie nodded. Well, so was Joseph. I can only assume that your fiance was the American Joseph was working with. Up until this moment, she thought she wanted to know everything that had happened to Steve on that terrible day. But now, the facts were like snipers, threatening her from out of nowhere with fresh wounds. She gathered up the mugs and returned them to the counter. I'm very sorry about your brother. Maggie wanted him to leave. She needed time for her thoughts to settle in the space between emotion. But I still don't understand why you're here. Ashkenazi rose slowly. I need your help. She stared, refusing to prompt him again. He continued anyway. I want you to pass this information to someone you trust at the CIA. Why? Maggie asked, incredulous. I thought you said this conversation never happened. Tell them that I want to help them discover who killed your fiance and my brother, and to help them stop the weapons smuggling. She wanted to laugh. Steve had trained for years to learn how to recruit assets, and here she was, an accidental operative, talking with a man who was volunteering to spy on behalf of the United States. Mr. Ashkenazi, you're asking me to help you spy on your own country? The way I see it, I am helping to rid my government of the vermin that infests it. 
My country has suffered so much for far too long. Pain flashed across his face. I want to find the bastards who murdered my brother. Maggie felt for Ashkenazi and his raw anguish, but who knew what the CIA would do with this man and his information? Something told her she needed him more than Langley did. I'll see what I can do. Thank you, he nodded. I am leaving for home this evening to bury my brother. I hope, his voice wobbled. They're still trying to identify his remains, but we will hold the funeral regardless. I will contact you next week when I return. What's your mother's name? He took a step back. Why do you ask? I, Maggie scrambled for an answer. I'd like to send her a letter. My condolences. Tamaz clasped his hands together in front of his chest. You're very kind. Her name is Tatiana. Send your letter to the address on my card and I'll be sure she gets it. Tatiana, she repeated to herself. Of course. She tilted her head. By the way, how did you find me? The death notice is in the newspaper. He paused, then added, thank you for your hospitality. I will let myself out. Wait, one more thing. There's a rumor that Steve sold intelligence to the Russians. Did your brother ever say anything? She couldn't finish the sentence. The Georgian exhaled. You know Steve's soul best. Was he capable of such betrayal? Then he turned and walked down the hall. Maggie absorbed the question. The click of the front door shook her back into the moment. She grabbed a pen and notepad from a drawer and hastily wrote down the two names she'd learned. Then she ran to the living room window in time to see a silver car with diplomatic plates drive away. There are so many conflicting, confusing developments for Maggie to deal with. What is she to make of Congressman Carvelli? And what about that Georgian diplomat who claims his brother was killed alongside Steve? How can Maggie discern what's the truth? Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here. But subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice.
All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. Thank you.